Welcome to episode 35 of the Do Care podcast. I'm your host, Georgie Corkery, pronouns she, they. Your other host, Mary McGee, is not here with us today, but here in spirit. This podcast discusses queer intersectional ecofeminism and artistry, and the topic for this episode is history of homosexuality and conversion therapy. And to talk about the topic, we have Chris Babbitts, who is an assistant professor of U.S. history, history of sexuality, and the history of psychology, as well as being the coordinator for concurrent enrollment for U.S. history and the provost faculty fellow. Chris is an interdisciplinary scholar with specializations in the histories of the modern United States, lived religion, gender, and sexuality and psychology. Hi, Chris. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Do you prefer Professor Babbitts or Chris? You can just call me Chris. Okay. <laughs> what are you most excited to talk about today on the episode? Yeah, I'm excited to talk about the history of conversion therapy, which I've been researching since 2015 from when I was in a PhD program in history. I've kind of been slowed down writing the book because of something called the COVID-19 pandemic. But generally, you know, there's a lot of interesting things for the history of conversion therapy that I think really busts people's misconceptions that this is something that's only existed in the U.S. Bible Belt. Mm, Yeah, I've never thought about the extent to which it exists. And spoiler alert, I wasn't able to watch the documentary that I want to be talking about today, even though I tried my best. But we will get into that after a little icebreakers. First one being cats. Have you interacted with any cats recently? So I'm actually allergic to cats, which I don't think is an uncommon thing. No, it's not. But I do have a favorite cat that I've seen recently. We bring our dog, our miniature schnauzer pretzel, to boarding. Ooh, uh, and pretzel. also That's day- a cute name. Yeah. And also daycare. And recently there was a cat in their boarding section for the cats mm. named Mike. And he really did look like a Mike to me. <laughs> so uh, that was interesting. I'm also a giant fan of a plushie cat named Pusheen, who is famous in the, I don't know, I guess the Facebook messenger Social media world. world. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I get my, my dosage of cats uh, in other ways other than petting them. Nice. You said Pushy the... Pusheen, the plush cat. Yeah. So if <laughs> it should any... be a children's book. <laughs> oh, the, she she does have two books. So. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, uh, she is kind of internet famous. So okay, perfect. I will probably look up that cat now. The cats I've interacted with were um, at City of Rocks. I just went recently, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, there's a cat colony there, and there's some kittens. But I did get to pet some of them. They were very cute. But I'm against cat colonies because they get out of hand quick. And then my friend Michael's cat named Shushka, and Shushka means little bear, and she is the cutest little bear there is. (laughs) This is Georgie from the future, and I need to make a correction because Shushka does not mean little bear. It means small Russian treat. These treats are mildly sweet bread rings eaten for dessert, usually with tea. I googled it, but I was also told by Michael. I did consider taking out the fact that I misremembered and defined Shushka as little bear, but I did say that Shushka the cat is the cutest little bear I know, and I stand by that. She's also a really cute little treat. Back to the episode. Next, we'll talk about wildlife. Have you seen any good wildlife recently? So I saw something that I have never seen driving back from uh, California last week, which were thousands of scorpions on the road and on the side of the road. 
in northern Nevada. And together they like presented this reddish hue of a mo- like mass. Whoa. And all I could think about was how horrible it would be to break down at that exact moment. Yeah. Because I'm originally from the northeast. No scorpions there. <laughs> uh, and although they're quite tiny, I sure there were, there were literally thousands of Did them. Did you see how big they were? They were probably a, like a half dollar size. So oh not giant, but definitely sizable enough. Yeah. I don't know much about scorpions, let alone their like, migration patterns or <laughs> their reproductive patterns. It sounds like a bunch might have just been born. Yeah, it was it was a lot. And they, they were all up on the, the side, like the Jersey barriers and just crawling everywhere. That's wild. Did yeah. you get pictures? Did not get pictures oh, just because it kind of kind of was a little much. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Wow. I've never heard of that. That's quite the wildlife sighting. <laughs> yeah. Very unique and had never done or never seen it before. So yeah. Well, mine's less exciting compared to that. You've beat me today. I, like I said, went to City of Rocks and I saw a really big snake and I forget what kind it was, but it was red and black striped. And per usual, I screamed really loudly. <laughs> and then I saw two gopher snakes up Dry Canyon. Um, just recently here in Logan. So I'm absolutely terrified of snakes <laughs> because they move, but they don't have feet. <laughs> and just that <laughs> concept, I know I've looked at the science behind how they move, but it's still still just it's kind It's really of, freaky. Yeah. You know? I think they're cool, but yeah, they, they scare me too when I see them in the wilderness, <laughs> uh, especially big ones that are red and black. Yeah. for conscious content consumption i wanted to talk about a podcast that i feel like you might know of if you listen to podcasts sometimes this one is called history is gay it is a podcast that examines the underrepresented and overlooked queer ladies gents and gent mbs that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history because history was never as queer as you think it was that's the tagline This is Georgie from the future again. I wanted to talk about the term gent envies. I had no idea what that was. If I don't know what it is, then maybe you don't know what it is. The way it is spelt is G-E-N-T, so gent, dash, envies, being E-N-B-I-E-S. And the word envies is plural for the word envy, singular, E-N-B-Y, and N-B, the letters, is non-binary, and then they shortened it to just NB, but then they spelt it E-N-B-Y. So NB turned to NBs, and then this podcast calls them Gent NBs. And I'm not sure where the Gent comes from, but maybe that's just to make it a little fancier, which I support. And that is your queer word of the day. You've learned something new. You're welcome. So did I. Back to the podcast. And then it's hosted by Lee Pfeiffer. It's new to me. I learned about it because I listened to another podcast, and they covered lesbian seagulls. I talked about this in our last episode. Queer birds and queer animals I nerd out over, and so listening to that episode got me really excited, and then they referred to this podcast. And two recent episodes that they came out with have to do with queer folks in baseball, and they refer to that new TV show, um, A League of Their Own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you seen it? I have watched it, yeah. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. That was great. I didn't realize you'd be so queer. I do wish there was a little bit more softball or <laughs> in baseball in it because those women were so good at it, mm-hmm. too. So maybe capturing that element of how good they were at the sport yeah. 
much like the movie did with Tom Hanks in, mm, in yeah. the early to mid-90s, um, just so people would have seen the skill yeah. that they had because I thought that you know the queer storyline was great too, but then there's this element of skill and physicality that yeah. could have been spotlighted slightly more. Yeah, they discuss it, but you're right. They don't really show it, Yeah, which is two different things. But yeah, so History is Gay has those two recent episodes and then two episodes that I really enjoyed talk about um, warriors in the past, female warriors, and uh, how gay were they, which is how they end every episode. But there's real-life Xena, warrior women across the world, and then the Amazons, stoner horse girl warriors of antiquity. All of those episodes I recommend. And just check out the podcast. I, it's it's a fun one for me to listen to. How about you, Chris? Do you have anything you want to share? So I'm entirely off social media, which I think has been the healthiest thing I've ever <laughs> done in my life. But there is a podcast that I used to work on and that is still producing called Sexing History. Oh. Uh, and it's about the history of sexuality, mostly in the United States, and it's a scripted historical overview of kind of key events, mostly in post-World War II United States history, um, on various aspects of the history of sexuality. So there's episodes on, um, I believe it was their very first episode, it's about um, this fight for in the 80s for a young gay man to bring a male date to the prom. Oh. And there's episodes about queer churches and the AIDS crisis. There's episodes about African-American women fighting for their sexual integrity and things like that between like 30 and 40 minutes. It's like a good interactive history lecture. Cool. So if people like that kind of thing, they really like it. So it's called Sexing History. Sexing history. That's awesome. I'll definitely look into it. I realize I'm a maybe a queer history nerd. That's why I'm just so excited to interview you today. <laughs> yeah, and, and that po podcast, it's kind of like when I teach the history of sexuality with my students, I feel like they want initially just post-World War II mm. LGBTQIA plus history, but then there's so much yeah. to unpack, especially with the overturning of Roe v. Wade recently. I think people are starting to realize there's so much sexual history out mm -hmm. there that we really need to become much more educated about or else we run a risk of letting our politicians lie to us about what the Supreme Court really rules in, in integral cases. So capturing that history is one way to challenge kind of a simplistic narrative that we're told in sound bites, especially by politicians, but then also certain media personalities at the same time. Yeah, it's never as simple as you think, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. Or as simple as some people tell us it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that, we should just jump into the topic of today. I do want to say that I reached out to Chris because I found out that he served as a historical advisor for the documentary Cured, which is about the fight to remove homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and Conversion Therapy. And I tried my best to watch the film. I even reached out to the Inclusion Center here at Utah State University and I was like, do you think that we could host a screening? And they're like, Georgie, we already did that last year. <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> so were you a part of that? Did you go to that screening? Yeah, I organized it, and we did that all virtually. Oh, and how cool. what we did was we got a code 
that we paid for where anybody affiliated with USU could watch this documentary, which PBS actually bought the rights for. And there's a bunch of different versions. And I saw all the different versions, the short, the long, the kind of medium. And we got the medium one. And anybody affiliated with USU could contact us, get the code. Today? Um, No, our rights for that have have passed. (laughs) Um, But then we also had a virtual Q&A with the filmmakers, but then also Equality Utah came for that to talk about kind of a more local fight Mm -hmm. for LGBTQIA rights. And then also one of the main people featured in the documentary, uh, who's Reverend Magora Kennedy. Uh, She's an African-American. A reverend has been very active in religious causes and also the fight for gay and lesbian rights was at Stonewall oh my God. and had a interesting story of, you know, fighting off the police. Yeah. And she must be in her 80s, approaching 90, but one of the most fascinating people ever. So she also came and, you know, like anything, we try to raise a good amount of funds for mm-hmm. especially people like the Reverend Kennedy to have a stipend. Yeah. And to be compensated for that intellectual labor, but then also that time. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You said there was a panel? Yeah, I think we have it recorded somewhere. Okay. I'll try to find it. And if I do, I'll link it into the show notes because yeah. that might be interesting for folks to watch. But I agree with you in terms of having folks get paid for their work. Mm-hmm. I might have shared the story before on the podcast, but I went to the Ecological Society of America conference and there were ecologists from all over the world. And I went to this LGBTQ BIPOC panel, and they're like, okay, who's part of a JEDI group or a DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion group on campus at the university that they're affiliated with? They said, if you're comfortable, stand up. Almost everybody stood up. And then they said, if you get paid to do that extra work, stay standing up. And five people stayed standing up. And it's like, wow, weird people aren't paid to do this when they also live with the stress of, you know, any quote unquote other identity. And then they have to do more work because they're passionate about it, but they don't get paid for it. They don't get compensated. Yeah. This past year we had Susan Stryker, who's kind of the premier pathbreaking scholar of trans history, especially within the U.S. context. And for the first maybe 10 years after Dr. Stryker had earned her Ph.D., it was kind of blackballed by universities. They didn't Mm -hmm. want to take on a trans scholar. And there's this decade in which she didn't get paid. It was very important for me and others who organized this talk to make sure that there was some restitution, some back pay. So we were able to get about $10,000 for a stipend or or an honorarium or speaker fee for Dr. Stryker. But I mean, I, I really feel like we owe that yeah. to those scholars to make sure that they also get that that pay. Same thing for the Reverend Kennedy, you mm-hmm. know, was not able to get, you know, a large congregation because she's queer um, and dealing with, you know, a, really a triple oppression of being black, queer, um, and, and uh, religious. Yeah. So, um, you know, dealing with that. Um, so th- that's really important, I think, to compensate people um, who had their livelihoods you know, really impacted by yeah. by who they are. Well, it's great to hear that you were part of doing some of that, and hopefully we see more moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to you, I'm wondering, how did you get involved, or where did your interest start in queer history? Yeah, so I'll be honest and tell you that I had no 
understanding of conversion <laughs> therapy when I started graduate school. Uh, I like to joke that I am shocked that they let me in with how vague my my statement of purpose was because uh, I said I was interested in the history of psychology, the history of gender uh, in it, <laughs> and that I wanted to do something with that. Uh, I didn't quite know what, though. Um, and, um, you know, I think that they took a good risk uh, in accepting me at the University of Texas at Austin because in that first year, I took a class called Psychology and Religion and American Culture with my dissertation supervisor. I knew he was going to be my supervisor, and I applied to work with him. His name's Bob Abson, absolutely adorable uh, <laughs> man and, and wonderful mentor. Uh, and in that class, we kind of collectively discovered that there was no long-standing history of conversion therapy. Hmm. So I had um, uncovered a man named jo uh, Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, who was Catholic. He died in 2017 hmm. and kind of pushed the kind of pro-conversion therapy line in the 90s especially and became part of the culture wars. And a couple things stood out here right away is, you know, all the scholarship really focused on evangelical Christians mm -hmm. and mostly in the American South. So here is this Los Angeles-based Catholic therapist <laughs> who has a clinical psychology degree. He has a, a, a doctorate, you know, and believes that this is efficacious treatment. So this stood out uh, in a couple different ways. One, I was born and raised Catholic in the Northeast. I was an altar boy. Um, <laughs> And probably the most dangerous point in time to be an altar boy. <laughs> and I, we joke, I'm laughing about it, but yeah. um, but it really was. You know, if you've seen Spotlight and other things, you know, this was a, a uh, not to overuse the word, but this is a pandemic of sexual assault. Absolutely. Um, uh, and so this was interesting to me because I found newspaper articles from the 80s about how Nicolosi himself was working with gay priests. So a whole bunch of layers right away that were so different than what the available scholarship was saying. And I tell my students here and elsewhere, wherever I've taught, usually there's nothing entirely new that you can possibly say at the undergrad MA. But at the PhD level, you're supposed to say something new. Yeah. Already, just in the first semester, I had something new. And that was exciting. So we knew that this was a story that needed to be told. It was a story that needed to become more nuanced, but not nuanced in a way where we're expunging kind mm -hmm. of these these crimes against humanity, but to show kind of the background and development of this and how uh, really the most prominent conversion therapists for about 27 years sometimes got called evangelical in, in scholarship <laughs> by very good scholars. Yeah. Um, and so we knew we had something. And um, we knew it was an important story to tell and that it was something that uh, could also keep my interest for mm -hmm. so long because there were so <laughs> many layers, so much new stuff to learn. Because before I went um, to UT Austin, uh, my historical training really focused on slavery and abolition. So entirely different stuff. Yeah. So I needed to be sure that kind of that history of religion stuff that I knew, um, but then also kind of a newfound interest in psychology and gender and then sexuality would then kind of carry on for, you know, sometimes, you know, a 10-year project, which yeah. is a dissertation. And then you usually have to rewrite a lot of it <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
for a book. So that way, hopefully somebody will read it. <laughs> um, well, I this would be a great time to segue to the fact that you're writing a book, in the process of writing a book. But before I talk about that, for folks who don't know, will you explain what conversion therapy is? You yeah. mentioned yourself that you didn't know until you went to grad school. Yeah, and so I, I think a lot of people think about it as praying the gay away. <laughs> and so a rig- re- large religious component in which people rely on faith to change uh, from gay to straight. It's much more complicated than that. Uh, that's kind of my where I started with my understanding. But mm-hmm. um, I think of conversion therapy as any attempt to change somebody's sexual orientation from sexual minority status to heterosexual or celibate. Mm. So that's a layer. But then there's also an element of gender identity that's even more important to this story. Gender identity is uh, kind of at the top for all of this. And so there's an element of conversion therapy to change people who are Mm non-normative in their gender identity expression presentation into a normative version of masculinity and femininity to match their birth sex. So there's a lot going on there, mm-hmm. but that is what conversion therapy has been. It's not as simply as simple as just praying the gay away. It could be uh, really what we're thought of at the time as valid psychological and scientific uh, interventions. At the, and that that's a tough thing, I think, to uh, get your head around is like how, you know, the scientific medically trained, oftentimes psychiatrists, you know, they had to have an MD and lots of residencies, especially in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, Mm -hmm. um, are thinking about what they do in counseling as sound science. But then the other layer of that is, you know, it's not only science. You know, they clearly have a moral and ethical view of the world that's tied to what we would say are conservative political interpretations of religious texts too. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to think that knowing that some of the conversion therapy, I think today we would classify as unethical. Yeah. (laughs) They were participating in that. And every major medical organization has issued statements against it. (sighs) I think that's the important thing to know from the American Psychological Association, American uh, Psychiatric Association to the American Medical Association all have strong statements against conversion therapy now. But some of them were really late <laughs> to, to this. You know, as, uh, you know, 1973, as we talk about, I think, when we, when we touch more on the documentary, it's kind of a turning point year in which uh, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. We kind of view that maybe too triumphantly, and and we'll talk about that. But in the early 80s, the American Medical Association issued a strong statement that conversion therapy could work. Mm -hmm. And so this is past that triumphant, (laughs) that triumphal moment. Is that why you say maybe, is that why you say we viewed it maybe too triumphantly? Probably so. Because they went back? (laughs) Because um, the American Psychiatric Association did include new diagnostic terms after 1973 to continue the sanctioning of conversion therapy within um, psychiatric 
um, settings. Yeah. And, you know, this included um, a, a category called ego dystonic homosexuality until 1987. So that's a 14-year period, yeah. right? That it's still being debated, but it's also still medically sanctioned. Today? No, to 1987. Oh, okay. Sorry, um, I was like, no, no. <laughs> no. Um, and sorry, you said ego... Dystonic. What does that mean? So if you are ego dystonic, something about you clashes with your ideal understanding of yourself. Mm. So this was one way. So 1973, that decision to remove homosexuality, uh, I, I forget if it's like the Philadelphia Gay Times but, or somebody, it could have been the advocate, um, but they declared all homosexuals cured <laughs> because oh they are no longer sick, right? Yeah. So, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, so like a positive, <laughs> like we're all cured because it's no longer. Um, but so that's a big decision because it's no longer ruling that every homosexual is, is sick, right? Yeah. Um, but it's still uh, the ego dystonic homosexuality category. So when you don't want to be gay so, but you are yeah um which but is it clashes with your understanding of yourself which is probably a form of you know what we might call internalized homophobia yeah. today but that's not a term that really existed at that time yeah yeah and i assume the documentary cured is that why it's called cured is because we're all cured now because it's not um a sickness yeah illness there's a couple of different reasons other than it's catchy. <laughs> right? Everyone loves a good short one word thing. But especially the 1940s, 50s, 60s, into the early 70s, the word cured was used a lot more within conversion therapy. And so mm-hmm. you had a faith, and I use that in a lot of different ways, that especially uh, medical practitioners could have success with this transformational process that they were then cured mm. of this affliction, supposed affliction. Mm-hmm. Uh, viewers should know there's tons of scare quotes throughout <laughs> everything I'm saying. Yeah. But then the word cured kind of goes away in the 90s, the turn of the 20th century. And they use a different word more often, which is change. So the documentarians really capture kind of a moment where they're really using that word much more. Mm -hmm. And then kind of with the changing political dynamics of the country, like cured kind of sounds bad. Yeah. But change sounds better, I I guess. I don't (laughs) I'm not I'm not really certain. Change as in a cultural shift change or a change in one sexual identity change. Right. So they think that that sounds better Mm -hmm. even today. And this is a very present thing, practitioners of what they would like to call sexual orientation change efforts, which they call SOCI, hate being called conversion therapists because they think that that is a political weaponized name Mm. against them, that they're called the quote-unquote gay agenda has (laughs) has, uh, issued against them. And I got to see this a couple times. I'm, I don't know, curious enough to have attended a bunch of the annual meetings of the main SOCI organization called the Alliance for a Therapeutic Choice and Scientific Integrity. It's a good um, acronym. Lot to unpack <laughs> there too. And they very much were like, we're not conversion therapists. No one active in this movement has ever said conversion therapy. And that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> so Joseph Nicolosi, that Catholic psychologist I was talking about, 
in the 90s and early 2000s did use the term quite often. And he was the former leader of that organization, the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice and Scientific Integrity. So it's not, I'm not in the, I'm not like, I, I feel like a lot of people have debunked conversion therapy mm-hmm. as pseudoscience, unethical. I'm not quite in the, let's just write a book debunking everything. I don't yeah. think that's really the most interesting way to approach this. If somebody wants that, there is a book called Anything But Straight by Wayne Besson, who used to work for the Human Rights Campaign. Read that book <laughs> if that's what you need to get jazzed in order to fight for, you know, especially gay, lesbian uh, rights within this context of, of conversion therapy, but also trans rights too. But I think his, the historian's job is to be more nuanced. So I'm not like, oh, here's this article that your former leader used to say, unless if they get yeah. pushy with me and then <laughs> I will like, email them all of that. So, and they, they, they do occasionally email me. They know about my existence, but that has kind of tapered off. So. Okay. Well, one question I wanted to ask you about the documentary is how did you become involved with the creation of it? And what exactly did you do as a historical advisor for the documentary? I don't know quite what that means, but it sounds like probably something you were excited to say yes to or get the offer yeah. And so this came about from a connection from the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C., which was one of the earliest gay rights organizations, mostly gay men. Lesbians formed their own societies and organizations in the 50s. And this was reborn, I forget when, maybe in the past 10, 15 years, by Kate Feltz and Charles Francis. And what was the name of the society again? The Mattachine Society. Mattachine. Yeah. And they passed on my name to the filmmakers and they contacted me and asked mm-hmm. if I would want to look over kind of their, or hear their preliminary storyboard, their research, what they were finding and give them some pointers. They didn't want my dissertation. They didn't want to <laughs> tell that story, the whole story because that's not transferable from text to yeah. the screen. But they wanted to make sure that they were getting things right. And they were very careful with that. And so they brought on, I think, a team of about five or six historians. They did pay us for our labor. So <laughs> I'm sure some of the bigger names got more money than I did. But they were looking for narrative structure, accuracy, and things like that. And they were really receptive to feedback. And I feel like the people that they got, which included me, but then also Susan Stryker, who I mentioned, who has produced and directed documentaries herself, we were really on an eye for like what would capture a public's attention for this story. Not like for a documentary, you don't want, you don't need all the nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, you want enough that people understand that it's a complicated history, but they don't need to go down the rabbit holes of everything. Yeah. And so I got to help give feedback on the initial story. I got to see rough cuts that had none of the footage in it <laughs> um, <laughs> and like a bunch of placements and tell them what I thought of that, which is kind of interesting to see a documentary in its rough form. Yeah. They wanted to know where they could cut and things like that. But then I I said that they were very careful. And one of the stories from a person that they interviewed who said that she had gone through a bunch of different kinds of conversion therapy, including electroshock Mm. and kind of the more aversive, horrible ones uh, in the 60s and 70s, I kind of said I didn't really believe her story. Mm. (laughs) And they were like, well, she's so passionate about it. And... It came out that she didn't go through conversion therapy. 
And none of us are psychoanalysts, so we didn't want to kind of figure out yeah. why she did this. But they actually had to really make the whole movie. Whoa. Because she was so prominent in it. Oh, gosh. But they did it because they they didn't want that to ruin their whole entire work. So then I saw different cuts (laughs) without her in it. But, I mean, that that shows the care that they took with it to keep on following it up. But then they had so much material that they could go with. That though she gave some of the most compelling testimony, they had more than enough to yeah. go elsewhere. Well, it's nice to hear that they really did want to do it right and mm-hmm. they went through the effort to do that. Yeah. And that's been kind of the tough thing about this history is, you know, you as a historian, you're interested in people's lived experiences. Mm-hmm. As a cultural historian, an intellectual his- historian myself, I'm interested in how people make sense of the world around them, uh, even if they don't have a fidelity to the truth. <laughs> but if you're doing a documentary and you have somebody who made up a story, that's a problem. Yeah. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem if you're writing a book, too. Yeah. But you at least have the words to yeah. analyze it and, and and do something more that I don't think you can do in a documentary. Yeah. And then all of the credit would be lost. Mm-hmm. People would be like, oh, see, that person lied. What you're trying to say is nonsense. Exactly. And especially in kind of the political times we lived in now where mm-hmm. I feel peop- like people are looking to just dismiss something. Mm-hmm. And that's their political engagement <laughs> is, <laughs> is just looking for like one little tiny argumentative hole to be like, well, this is all crap and, mm-hmm. and we don't have to listen to this. Yeah. To validate their point of view. Exactly. Yeah. Which, unfortunately, too many of us do that. Yeah. I want to talk about this book that you're that's in the works for you that you're mm-hmm. writing. Your first book, right? Is that it what is I my read? first book. Okay. To Cure a Sinful Nation, a History of Conversion Therapy in the United States. For the book, I'm wondering what the timeline is because the history of conversion therapy, I I don't know when that started. Yeah. So this is probably overly ambitious. And (laughs) every time I kind of do a revision of what I have, I kind of cut back some of the earlier history because the source material is more one-sided. But... There are records of people within the medical professions, especially, trying to, quote-unquote, change somebody's homosexuality as early as about the 1880s. And so one of the interesting things about this is I'm sure it's older than this, and there's religious counseling and things like that. But the term homosexuality isn't even coined until about 1867. Oh. So it's a extraordinarily modern term. <laughs> and so, you know, you can't quote-unquote, fix something unless if you have a name for yeah. it, in, in the, at least in the medical realm. And so the 1880s is really a good starting point. But within the U.S. context, it really takes off after World War II. You have kind of a conservative interpretation of Freudianism mm-hmm. that really sweeps through not only in the medical professions, but, you know, uh, Freudianism really describes those post-war decades. Like, you know, this is the height of cultural Freud. Mm-hmm. Where, for, ever, where everyone has mommy issues and daddy issues and, <laughs> and things like that. For those who might not know what Freudianism is, will you explain that? Yeah, this is the psychological thought of Sigmund Freud. And so he is the creator of, of psychoanalysis, kind of the traditional, you lay on the couch, free association, you talk to your therapist. Your therapist doesn't really say much other than tell you what's wrong with you. Uh, <laughs> and that, that's maybe being harsh. There were, you know, way different things. But if you've watched Mad Men, which is one of my favorite TV shows, Betty Draper, 
kind of meets with a classical Freudian trained psychiatrist Mm. and she just lays on the couch and she gets really angry when (laughs) he says nothing to her and but he scribbles in his notepad and occasionally gives some diagnosis Hmm. i've i've not seen that show but other people have recommended it it's a good show it seemed well i guess based on the name i was like it seems like really intense and actiony but maybe it's not it's a drama Okay. They actually do really great work with their female characters. Hmm. Well, strong female characters are some of my favorite. <laughs> uh, if, if you watch The Handmaid's Tale, Elizabeth Moss is in both, and she, I think, has won awards for both. Is so. she the blonde one, the, mm-hmm. like, the main The main character, character. yeah. Okay. Cool. So. I haven't seen either of them. <laughs> yeah. So it's summer, you know, it's yeah. plenty of time to binge. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so going back, you were talking about post- World War II, that's when the concern for homosexuality really arose. Yeah. And so this, like many things at that time, deals with an intersection of communism during the Cold War. Mm. And so there's a kind of idea that homosexuals not only weaken the nation by not reproducing and becoming like really manly men, especially. There's more concern about male homosexuality than lesbianism. But then also that there could be a horrible way for the Soviets to infiltrate America with these kind of supposedly feminine, weak homosexuals who they can be blackmailed into passing mm. on uh, state secrets and things like that. So this really intersects with what we call the Red Scare yeah. and really becomes a hysteria. And there's a great book called The Lavender Scare yeah. um, by David K. Johnson that really kind of explored a lot of this, especially within the government and then uh, spread to the defense industries and kind of this attempt to purge homosexuals from the federal government. And so for a lot of people, if they were kind of wrapped up in that, a court would actually suggest or require that they go see a therapist to change their sexuality. Mm-hmm. So you have courts implicated in this. You have yeah. lawyers. You have obviously the psychiatrists who think that they can change people. So in those first couple decades after World War II, you do see this religious overtone But you don't see as many religious people thinking that they can do this counseling. You get some, but you don't get as much as you might think in our kind of current day understanding of conversion therapy. Hmm, Interesting. Before 1880, the 1880s, when there wasn't a term, homosexuality, was that going to be part of your book and you decided to not incorporate it? And if so, I'm sure you know a bit about it. Was it not something that people thought was an issue? So that that's a tricky thing because in the 19th century, there is a lot of different homosexual bonding than mm-hmm. what we have today. You know, you might get your bro hug <laughs> in today, right? And I think nothing of it. But you had young women at all women's colleges sending what would look to us as love letters. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they were engaging in any kind of sexual activity even kissing, is always just kind of tough to figure out. But it was just the mood of the times. A lot more people know about Alexander Hamilton Mm -hmm. today. Even earlier in the 19th century, you'd have men who sent these really affectionate letters to each other. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, what historians call the danger of presentism. You know, reading these things and be like, oh, my God, everyone is gay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that would make things a little bit easier for uh, the LGBTQ rights movement today if that was, in fact, the case. But no, it's it's the moment of the, you know, that's what yeah. the times are. 
historians are much more comfortable with the post-Civil War period and looking at a history of homosexuality, because this is also, at least in the U.S. context, a rise of urbanization mm-hmm. and gay subcultures form in these cities. Okay. And we have a lot more documentation from that period, especially from the 1870s on as cities boom. You know, yeah. you have not only New York uh, that had you know, long been the largest city, but then Chicago pretty much rises out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, the joke is that re-rises from the ashes because there was a great Chicago fire. But then you have San Francisco that starts to become mm-hmm. a gay hub. Philadelphia is oftentimes overlooked. So we have a lot more documentation. And some of that documentation is police records, confessions during that. And so we just have more about same-sex sexual activity mm-hmm. starting at that point. Yeah, I guess that's it's easier to see that than a very romantic letter between men. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's hard to read either way. And if I remember correctly, people were separated into less co-ed areas, right? right? So if you were born a man, you would hang out with men mostly. And then if you were born a woman, you would hang out with women mostly. So that makes sense that you would just get closer and feel closer. There is one great book if somebody wants to read an earlier history of at least a same-sex marriage. I, I guess even this historian doesn't quite know if... She wants mm-hmm. to call it that. It's a book by Rachel Hope Cleves called Charity and Sylvia. Mm. And it's about these two women who live together, clearly an affectionate relationship in rural Vermont. Mm-hmm. And their whole community knew that they lived together. They were a staple of this community, too. They were active in religious services because you were at that point in time, no matter what. And so this is one of the best documented cases that historians have. Mm. So that book's called Charity and Sylvia by Rachel Hope Scleves. And it's, uh, I had students in Honors Book Lab at USU read it. Okay. And they were like, oh, this is so fascinating. This is so, so different than what we would have thought. So there's traces. Yeah. But no one tried to, quote unquote, change yeah. either of them that we know of. So They're like, wow, this is great. Yeah. They love each other. I debate <laughs> assigning it in my history of sexuality class. And then there's this other book that I think my students hate. That I might replace it with, but I want one more go with this book and maybe just do a little bit more explanation of what this historian is trying to accomplish. What's the book that they hate? They hate a book by Thomas Foster, who is this wonderful historian. And <laughs> if, if he ever hears it, uh, I want him to know that I think he's a wonderful historian. <laughs> but it's uh, called Sex and the Founding Fathers. Oh. And it is how people have remembered the Founding Fathers' sex lives or erased elements of it mm. from the time they lived to about 2010. So okay. he published it in 2014. I like it because at Utah State, all the students are like, how about more about the Founding Fathers? So yeah. here's another book. <laughs> <laughs> Very different. But I think that they want it to be more liberatory. Yeah, you know, They want it to be like, Thomas Jefferson's a rapist kind of thing. And yeah. it's just like, well, how about these these silences around the Hemingses. Like, isn't this fascinating? And I think I find it more fascinating than they do. So, yeah. But if any listeners are interested, I do recommend (laughs) that book, but know that it's how other people have written about the founder's sex lives Mm -hmm. or tried to downplay things. And, And I think that that's an interesting story for us as we create a national myth yeah. Uh, really around them. Gosh, well, my book list is growing yeah. <laughs> listening to you. And I will link all of the books that you've mentioned into the show notes. 
I assume that the book you're writing is going to end in more modern times. Yeah. I wonder, you're not done with the book. You sounded indefinite about when it might <laughs> be published. But when readers finish the book, do you think it'll be on a positive note and they'll feel more hopeful? Oh Gosh, that's such a tough question. So one, the book is about 90% done and only those earlier chapters mm-hmm. are not written because historians, we write things in chronological order for the most part. And I'm trying to frame it in a way where the first couple chapters are not boring. <laughs> so, <laughs> because it gets really interesting after that. Yeah. And so that's, that is the challenge is to make those chapters as engaging as the later ones. So we're hopeful for next year, 2024, for a publication. With that, it would be released during a presidential election year. Mm-hmm. And currently, the Republican primary candidates seem devoted to a version of free speech that could protect conversion therapy. So there's an mm-hmm. idea that conversion therapy can be protected by multiple ways of the First Amendment. So the First Amendment, to remind people, gives us the right to free speech, right to free exercise of religion, and then also right to assembly. And so those first two, speech and religion, are huge mm-hmm. for it. And currently, I think 25 states ban conversion therapy on minors, but only licensed therapists providing mm-hmm. those serv- services, because generally they know that if they ban priests, rabbis, yeah. uh, bishops, Mormon bishops, I'm trying to get everything, <laughs> because you know Latter-day Saints have a history of conversion therapy too then that will be easily overruled. It will be ruled unconstitutional because you are infringing upon what people view as their religious practices. That is a pretty solid throw out the case. And I believe California, which was the first state to ban conversion therapy on minors, limited it to professionally trained psychologists of any sort because they they knew this. So Ted Lieu, who was a state rep or senator at that time, he's now in the U.S. Congress changed the bill, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, to not have it be so easily ruled unconstitutional. He changed it so that it would take out of the religious counselor element, so that they could do that. They so could practice. They could still therapy. practice because then it's an easy overturn of yeah. the entire law. So this is where things become tricky because if you had asked me in 2016, mm-hmm. I would have been more positive that those laws would withstand court challenges because the Supreme Court looked very different. Yeah. It looked like Hillary Clinton was going to thrash Donald Trump. <laughs> and now we have an entirely different makeup yeah. of that court. You have Anthony Kennedy, who was probably the foremost kind of advocate for gay rights. And I, I want to keep it to gay and lesbian rights um, mm-hmm. because that's what the court has re- mostly heard. Retire. You know, he's yeah. not on the court. So the, the liberals and then the coalition builders are gone. So I'm this is my long-winded answer for saying <laughs> I actually can envision the Supreme Court ruling these conversion therapy bans on minors to be unconstitutional mm. and then saying you can't do this. And I know like that's not what people want to hear. No. But you know, this is this is what you have to hear. I I I've told my students who are very upset with the overturning of Roe v. Wade is this happened because there was some liberal notion of progress. We always get better. 
you know, and I think that's good for young people to hear, especially if you know they are not raised in an affirming household or mm-hmm. religion. That really, those first eighteen years are not the best years of your life. <laughs> High school stressful, but no one likes it when you look back. Like from college on, you can be who you want to be. It gets more so easily. much better as you grow older. That gets better, but. When you have a notion of continual progress, you don't understand how something that you think will always be there could be overturned, like abortion rights. You know, this is the same kind of thing. Like, well, why would we ever overturn this? Well, you got to fight, you got to vote, and you got to make sure that you understand the structure of government enough that you can be like, okay, my rights can be winnowed. Yeah. So I, I think it's the same cautionary tale. That should have been more prominent, I think, in the abortion rights struggle. And it's the same thing, I think, with us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure writing a book about history would be difficult because writing the end, mm-hmm. I mean, do you have the end written? How, how do you tie a bow on it when, if it comes out in a year and yeah. Congress, Supreme Court, what if that changes? You yeah. Know? So there's a fancy thing. Instead of writing a conclusion, you can write an epilogue. So Mm. an epilogue signals that things are not definitive, right? But there was, you know, we were talking about the accuracy of Mm -hmm. lived experiences and whatnot. And in my book proposal, because you write a book proposal, send it off. I did want to start the book off with a prominent anti-conversion therapy advocate who has been very active. But I didn't ever really believe his story Mm. and now that person is non-binary and they got into some legal trouble and then this is the problem with writing living history yeah and so that actually gave me an out to not write about this person i just didn't they couldn't remember their therapist ever despite all of this torturous experience and so Mm. they could never be traced back and that's a little fishy as a story and and that's a little too circumstantial doesn't mean that this person didn't have really shitty things happen to them. Yeah. But I couldn't verify anything. Yeah. And so, you know, there's always these changes based upon what's happening. And the legal stuff is you write in a less definitive <laughs> tone. <laughs> but historians were really good at understanding the past and how it shaped the present. There is a master's degree in CHAS on campus that says that they can predict the future. I'm less skeptical about their ability <laughs> to do that. Wonderful marketing materials. But yeah, we are comfortable with the past. How the present is still being shaped is, is tricky. I was kind of hoping for a resolution actually from the Supreme Court so I can have a solid yeah. ending. But I don't think that court case might might make it in the next couple of years, which is good for those bans mm-hmm. and provides time for some retirements from the Supreme Court yeah. that could make it so those bans stay. And what's the name of the court case? Oh, gosh. If you know. So there's a couple different challenges. There's a challenge from a man named David Pickup who moved from California to Texas after California banned conversion therapy on minors. Texas is never going to pass that kind of law. Yeah. And then there is another therapist. He has a master's in family therapy, which is actually kind of <laughs> what they're getting their credentials of is master's of sometimes social work and yeah. sometimes marriage and family therapy. And his name is Christopher Doyle. And if there's one person in their world that hates me, 
endlessly. It's Christopher <laughs> Doyle. So one day at one of those meetings that I attended, which was attended by 80 to 100 people, so mm-hmm. not giant, but they're also much larger than I think most people might think mm-hmm. they would be. I had introduced myself to the small group and I said I was writing a book. And then the next day he said he was writing a book on the history of conversion therapy. But he introduced himself before me and I introduced myself and I said I was writing a book on the history of conversion therapy. Two Chris's? And I was (laughs) writing a book on conversion therapy. The interest and I was like, Well, the interesting thing is my book's gonna sell better than this other Chris's (laughs) 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 and everyone but him laughed. They they knew I was joking and that's just kind of who I am. And he did beat me. His book is out. But clearly his is, um, he wouldn't say it is, but it's clearly extraordinarily biased. Okay. Yeah. How do you make sure that you don't have a bias or how have you made sure that your book isn't biased? Well, historians would say that there's no such thing as an unbiased book now. I guess less biased than other Chris's book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His is a full-throated support Mm. of, of conversion therapy. He had actually gone through the therapy himself, mm. a form of it, tests that it works. So this is the, pro- the, the challenge of lived experiences. Yeah. I don't discount that he thinks it worked. Yeah. That's not my job as a historian is to be like, well, he's a fraud, right? Yeah. Because in his world, it worked. He has a family. He has children. And so he's... Pretty convinced that works to the point where that's one part of his counseling practice that he he offers this, or at least used to. And now he's in Maryland. Maryland has one of these bands, so he's been challenging that. And I, I think that's where our books may differ. I give room for people who say it worked. Yeah. And look at the cultural and social conditions that they face, oftentimes with internalized homophobia. Mm-hmm. And Recognize the power of that, of the power of growing up in an anti-queer society and what that would do for people wanting to change. And, you know, what's really great is there's lots of books about people who say it's changed. But then there's also people like Martin Duberman, who is a really renowned historian, won every prize you could in the 60s and Mm -hmm. 70s. And then it's really a pioneer of gay history. And he has a book called Cures, which he uh, is a memoir. And he recounts all the different kinds of conversion therapy he went through and how he hoped for change because he couldn't live in this anti-queer society. Mm -hmm. He couldn't disappoint his mom, all these things. And by the end, he's just like, there's nothing that's going to cure me of this. This is who I am. But he had to go through years of psychotherapy and a whole bunch of other things in order to recognize that. And so you can see with that experience, those social and cultural pressures people felt and why it's so important in today's day and age to not revert back to that because queer youth will think that that's the only solution for them. Yeah. It would be great to live in a society where we could accept people the way they were instead of needing to change them, as I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast uh, already agrees with preaching to the choir. My next question for you is specific to Utah. Do you know much about queer history in Utah? Yeah, so I know a little bit. As I've mentioned, I'm a Northeasterner by Mm -hmm. birth. A job brought me out here, mostly my wife's job. She (laughs) makes much more money than I do and is much more established at Utah State University. But 
you know, my advisor, Bob, when I was looking at this, he's just like, okay, you found Catholics. That's great. <laughs> Go find Jews who did this. And Bob oh. used to be the director of the Jewish Center at University of Texas. That wasn't that hard to find. <laughs> and then he's <laughs> just like, well, this is seeming to be ecumenical, meaning this is across religious beliefs and de denominations. He's like, see if you can find some Latter-day Saint stuff. <laughs> was not hard to find. <laughs> like, I imagine. <laughs> and so BYU, not surprising probably to your listeners, was a hub of counseling starting in the 1960s. So before the 1960s, Latter-day Saint leadership didn't think that anyone could be Latter-day Saint and have same-sex desires mm. because of kind of the emphasis on patriarchy and family within both theology and then also the politics of the church. Then they found out in the 60s that apparently Latter-day Saints could be gay. Um, <laughs> and so BYU had a counseling center that provided these services for the young men who went there. It wasn't yet co-ed, I believe. Oh, and I didn't realize it was not co-ed. I could be with. wrong about this. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, but the counseling started with the young men. I do know this. Mm -hmm. uh, and somebody will know much more about BYU who's listening, and I'm sure they're emailing <laughs> about this. And I like to tell students that when you get one rejection from funding, it doesn't mean anything. There's thousands of good proje projects out there. Mm -hmm. Hopefully your advisors tell you the same thing. <laughs> yep. You reapply. Second time, don't take any offense to it. Apply for the third time. You oftentimes get it the third time because you show you're still interested. BYU has denied me four times <laughs> to look at their material on conversion therapy. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And they're not the only university who's complicit. That's just important to know. But some like Columbia and Harvard have been much more open to revealing parts of their history. But Harvard does have one file that is shut for 400 years. Whoa. So who knows what craziness that contains? Yeah. Um, 400 but, years. Yeah. Dang. So. Yeah, I just I tried to get it. They wouldn't give it to me. Yeah, I figured um, they'd benefit from being like, "Hey, we're going to be transparent, and we know that we've done some bad things, but yeah. also maybe not." Oh. Four hundred years seems like a long time. Yeah, so who knows what's in that one? So I, I don't want to sound like I'm piling on BYU because the Ivy Leagues, Tulane and New Orleans, mm. all complicit. UCLA. I don't know anything about Berkeley, but. Every university that had a psychiatric training program or some kind of feeder thing did something with conversion therapy in yeah. the 20th century. But BYU started later in the 60s and 70s. People who went through it talk about aversive reconditioning, so electroshock and forms of that. But then it even continued well into the 90s. There was a therapist named A. Dean Bird who was the head of the counseling program at BYU and uh, really well connected with the church. Uh, his son, after Chris Doyle, hates me maybe the second most um, <laughs> because I presented a paper at the Mormon History Association on the psychological and religious thought of Aideen Bird. And he becomes very active, especially in the 90s, writes tons of books. His son said that his father was no longer alive and couldn't defend himself, so I can't write about him. And I'm like, oh, sweet honey child, that's not how history works. <laughs> so George Washington's not alive. So and no one's saying we shouldn't write books about George Washington. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there is a long history. There is an ex-gay ministry. So they use the term ex-gay, even if it's more what we might call liminal, like in, yeah. in movement there, called Evergreen, that was actually sanctioned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh. And it was 
funded partially hmm. um, by them. So Evergreen. And Evergreen is still around. At least the last time I checked, I don't keep track of every organization. But that shows also, you know, there were hundreds of these ministries yeah. through the 90s and the 2000s. So, and Evergreen was one, and it was the most uh, prominent Latter-day Saint one. Wow. It's been interesting to learn about queer history. I'm fairly new to this nerddom, but learning about it specifically in Utah is interesting for me. As somebody who grew up here, I didn't grow up as a part of any church, but seeing the history and then seeing all my friends who have come from the church, I almost want to say I have two-thirds of my friends who have left the church, gotten a divorce, and then come out of the closet. Yeah. And it's wild to see what they go through, and I imagine what a lot of people who've been told, what you are is not right, and how that takes a toll on people. Yeah. And, And there's some good... Historical scholarship. Gregory Prince wrote a book about the church and homosexuality. It might even be more specific than that, gay rights and, and the church. And then Taylor Petrie, who we had in campus in April, wrote a book called Tabernacles of Clay, mm. uh, Gender and Sexuality and Modern Mormonism. And so that is kind of a path-breaking book there. Hasn't been, there's been some really great stuff on women in the church but not something that's zoomed out to think about gender identity and yeah. sexuality. And so there's some good stuff being produced by some well-respected scholars. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to read and look into those. You said Tabernacle of Clay? Tabernacles of Clay by Taylor Petrie. And in April, he gave a talk about kind of a longer queer history of Mormonism and its theology. How that cool. I think— a lot of us were really interested in, you know, Utah State. We get people from all over. A lot of the professors are not saints ourselves. And so learning about that theology and his take on it was was really fascinating. And then Gregory Prince wrote the other book. And Gregory Prince has written so much on Latter-day Saint history. Cool. Okay. I'll definitely uh, link those back in the show notes, of course. Well, I have a few more questions. The main one is why... You've mentioned this in part, but why do you think people should care about this? Why do you care about this? Yeah, I think this is one of those stories that tells us so much about who we are as Americans and what we have believed and then really contextualizes a current struggle for greater rights. And a clash that has existed called the culture wars is still raging. There was a a historian I like who thought that the culture wars were dead and then had to write an article that said, the culture wars are dead, long live the culture wars. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we we get to see the politicalization of gender and sexuality. And this story on the history of conversion therapy is a lesser known part of this struggle, but it's it's really tied to the fight for same-sex marriage. You know, you can't sanction marriage if you think both people are deviants. Mm -hmm. So the fight against conversion therapy really paved the way for some of the greater civil rights victories of late. But, you know, you get to see this confluence of activism from LGBTQ plus activists, but then also religious activists. You get to see medicine 
being moralizing. And we like to think of medicine not as moralizing. Mm -hmm. But every time I talk to any of my female friends, they get to hear how moralizing <laughs> it still is today, yep. especially if they want to take control over their own reproductive system. Mm -hmm. That's a no-no, apparently. But you get to see earlier versions of that. I, I separated the book into 33 shortish chapters, which is oh. mainly for the benefit of the reader to not be bogged down <laughs> in long chapters. But it's also to really focus on some of these main themes that have made us who we are today and explain kind of this current struggle. And I mean, if people are looking at, you know, we have different notions of freedom and rights that exist. You know, you have a Ron DeSantis who screams freedom at all things as he's literally trying to ban books and classes and, mm -hmm. and ideas. But then you also have people who are literally fighting for survival. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not because gender queers on a bookshelf in the library and that's so offensive. Like these yeah. people are fighting for survival, for their livelihood mm -hmm. to be recognized. And so I think and I hope the book will contextualize some of that for yeah. people. And I, there are a couple of things that I'm disappointed in the book. I wish that there were more people of color, but I, I've tried my best. I did go to 35 archives. I did win a grant to literally just only focus on the history of African-Americans, especially <laughs> in this. And I, I came up a little short, but I did come across more things as I talked about at the beginning with attempt at trans erasure. Mm. And I do hope that those chapters, and there's maybe three chapters at different points in time, especially in the post-World War II period that I got, make people respect trans individuals and their struggle for rights and, and, yeah. and selfhood much more yeah. than maybe more, maybe people other than your listeners <laughs> um, do, because that is a complicated history. It's an important one that more people need to engage with. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't, have an understanding of it because they're not exposed to it. I have a number of friends who are like, yeah, I don't know anybody who's trans. And it's kind of just a theory that's out there for them. So everyone hopefully could learn from that, probably including me. I feel like I have a lot to learn, which is why I get all you smart people to come <laughs> on my podcast. <laughs> I mean, you could always enroll in my classes, so... <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question is if people are interested in what you're saying and all these books that you're suggesting, uh, what classes do you teach here at Utah State University? Uh, so I have a history of sexuality class and in the falls it's in person in Logan. And then in the springs, it's actually asynchronous online. So that way we can reach more people who are non-traditional students, but then also at our many other campuses. Yeah, We wanted to give that option because it is a re required class for the sexuality studies minor, mm -hmm. and then it's an elective for our intersectional gender studies minor. And so we want to make sure that those are inclusive yeah. of, of everybody as possible. And no matter how much I would like to think that I could teach about 80 versions of that class, mm -hmm. I do have my limits. And yeah. also we talked about the importance of being compensated. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think Utah State wants to pay me about $3 million to teach 80 classes. Um <laughs> But it wouldn't be that much. I also teach a class called America in the 1960s. It's in person in Logan this fall. And then I teach a graduate history of psychology class. And every single semester, I teach a very large, sometimes up to 200 student wow. section of History 1700, which is originally just titled American History. <laughs> so that's generally what I teach. And then when they ask me to do other things, I've taught some history of religion courses here. So I taught a course called Religion and Politics in the Modern U.S., 
that was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think the students expected what they got within that one. A lot more history of sexuality than they were thinking. They were thinking, I think that they thought that there was going to be more theology, Mm. but that's not my specialty. Okay. So a lot of different things, Um, whatever they ask me to teach, I'm always happy to do. Awesome. Well, it sounds like for folks who might not be listeners who are in Logan or Utah generally, that there's an option to take at least one online class from you. I know that we have two listeners in Germany still haven't reached out to me. I'm so curious to know who you are. They listen to every (laughs) single episode. I'd love to know who you are. Uh, My last question for you is when your book comes out, where will it be available for folks? So my press, which is the University of Chicago Press, which is you know the largest press in the country when you okay. take in journals. Perfect. So it's what's called an academic trade book. So I'm writing it, I already said the 33 short chapters, mm-hmm. writing a much more engaging style. And according to my media plan, I'm supposed to be interviewed everywhere. So <laughs> uh, I hope that translates into the book being everywhere. So cool. it might be under a different name if your listeners might not know this. Authors have no control over the title of the oh, book. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the the press's marketing team can change it if they don't like it. Oh. So if you have ever critiqued a book title, it could have not <laughs> been the author's fault. But I'll I'll fight for this one to stay because this has been the dissertation t- title was to cure a sinful nation. I think it does a lot of work about ideas of curing and sin and how those intersect with gender and sexuality. Well, yeah, you were talking before about the crossroads of medicine and therapy and, I guess, morality and religion. Yeah, so... Brings it all in. The intro lays in those ideas pretty hard, so it'd be tough for them to change the title, (laughs) and I did that very much on purpose. (laughs) Well, good job. If the title does change, I... We'll go back and be sure to have it correct in the notes. Do you have anything else you want to share before we wrap up? No, I just want to thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for coming on. I was so excited. I also need to thank AJ for writing the intro and outro music. And as my dad always says, use your head and be clever. Bye, everyone. Bye. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) No problem.